you know, most people think, okay, when I sell my company, when I have finished whatever I want to finish, then I will take care of my health. Yes, but then people find themselves, you know, in their 50s with a heart attack or cardiovascular disease. And the question is uh, whether that's then a little bit too late. There is only one supplement that I think almost everyone on this planet should be taking, and that's a full spectrum and highly bioavailable magnesium supplement because, well, let's face it, ever since the Industrial Revolution, our soil has been depleted of magnesium, and therefore our food is depleted of magnesium. And on top of that, our modern environments, which are inherently overstimulating and stressful, are constantly depleting our body of magnesium. And unlike other nutrients, this is not something your body can produce on its own. It literally needs to get it from the diet. And one individual kind of magnesium alone is not enough. You actually need seven different kinds to support over 300 biochemical reactions that help regulate your nervous system, red blood cell production, energy production, uh, managing stress and emotions, etc. And so the folks at Bioptimizers have made it very easy and convenient to add back in what the modern world leaves out. They've created Magnesium Breakthrough. Now, I've been taking this for the past two years, and the biggest benefits that I've seen are related to my evening wind-down sessions and my sleep. I tend to be pretty overactive in the evenings, just totally overthinking everything that I do. And this has helped me wind down and get more restorative, more efficient sleep. So I wake up feeling way more refreshed, more energized, more clear, more ready for the day. And the way that I see it, sleep is upstream of essentially every other health and wellness-related habit and decision. Because if you're sleeping better, automatically you're going to have more regular cravings. You're going to have higher insulin sensitivity. You can derive more of all these inputs like fitness, right? You make more gains, you gain more muscle, you burn more calories, and you wake up feeling refreshed so that you can do it again and again and again. And then beyond the fitness, you have more energy to go for a walk, to do fun activities with friends. You are less stressed so you can socialize anxiety-free. And you're also going to be retaining, refreshing, and refining your skills and information much, much better. So you won't forget any names. And uh, yeah, I mean, like I said, over 300 biochemical processes that you're supporting with magnesium. And sleep, I mean, wow. Better sleep is just a better life in general. So I found it extremely helpful on a personal level, and I'm sure that you guys will find it helpful too. Your mind and body, and maybe even your spirit will, will thank you. So anyway, if you want to get a sweet little discount off of this amazing, amazing magnesium supplement from Bioptimizers, all you have to do is visit the show notes. So you scroll down right now, takes just a couple seconds and boom, you'll have access to all seven different kinds of magnesium that your body needs. All you have to do is hit the link and use code KYP for Know Your Physio, KYP. That's all. Enjoy 10 to 22% off depending on the package you choose, whether or not you subscribe. I'm obviously subscribed because I don't even want to think about whether or not I'm going to get this essential supplement in the mail. And uh, yeah, hope you guys enjoy that awesome stuff. And that's all for now. I'll see you guys on the show. All right, Bulza, here we are. Finally got a chance to set up this podcast with you after uh, chasing each other for it for so long because we know that we have um, some serious conversations we want to share with the world and uh, a mission we want to share with the world. And 
Um, I'm so honored to have you here finally. So thank you for joining us and welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, the honor is mine, Andres. You know, I'm your, one of your biggest fans of your podcast. So super happy to be on here and really looking forward to our conversation. Amazing. So I typically start these episodes asking one question, and that is, why do you do what you do? And if you can help us answer this question, maybe lead us in the direction of um, how you arrived at this rule that seems like it makes perfect sense to you. Yeah. So let's start with why. Why? It's a very important question that everyone that everyone should be asking themselves continuously. So um, uh, thanks for asking that. Um, why? I think uh, there's a multitude of factors that have led me to where I am today. But I think... Um, one of these things, one of the th- reasons why I do what I do, which is um, being the CEO and founder of Dream Health, a health and performance optimization company that helps leaders and high-performing teams uh, to reach their full potential through um, data-driven and holistic health and performance um, coaching. Um, I think that one of the main reasons is that I'm extremely fascinated by humans as in general as a species, uh, but also just humans biologically, physiologically. I find uh, the aspect of how the human body, uh, the sophistication of the human body, which is really the most sophisticated technology that we have uh, on this planet, no matter how far we come with other technologies. And uh, uh, also, psychologically how, how we deal with each other how we um how we act as groups and especially how we act in organizations i've as a leader myself um it was one of my uh main uh job as a ceo it's your main job to get the right people on the team and to make sure that they are uh developing that they are growing um that they feel happy and fulfilled in their uh, in their roles. So um, it was a very big part of my job already to think about what makes people uh, live at their fullest potential and come show up to work at their fullest potential. Uh, And I really think that this is, uh, although it's a very multifactorial um, topic that gets influenced by the environment that you live in, how you grew up, who you hang out with, uh, your community, I think that at the core of this is really your relationship with yourself, your relationship with your mind and your body, and what kind of framework do you have around you that allows you to show up every day as the best version of yourselves? How do you support yourself in that physically, mentally, um, physically, mentally, and spiritually? Um, I think that, uh, yeah, I believe that um, one of the most important factors for human development is the communities that we uh, are part of. And I think that, you know, our family is our first community, but our second most important community is the people that we work with because we do spend um, a lot of our time at work. You know, when people talk about work-life balance, I find this is a slightly strange concept of or word because it makes it sound like work and life are two separate things, like like life doesn't happen during work. And I do think that you most people spend half of their waking life at work. So really, how do we, uh, how, how 
do we as humans interact with each other at work and how does work influence our life uh, is such an important part of our health and how we live and our potential. And uh, it is uh, the leader's uh, responsibility, the, the organization's leader's responsibility to make sure that not only they are showing up as their best selves, but also um, they are they are coming as role models and making sure that there's a culture in the organization that promotes health really in a in a um, authentic way. Amazing. And how how did you arrive at a role that makes so much sense to you? What do you think that it was about your early life, your upbringing, and maybe your early career exposure that led you that 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 created this sort of perfect storm and the reason why i say that is well number one i i know you but i also i know that this role now makes so much sense to you it allows you to be so authentic every single day that you show up to work so how did your early life create this perfect storm yeah that's a, that's a very big question um i think uh, um as you know i i grew up i'm originally from kosovo i uh was born and grew up there and i grew up in a very in very turbulent times i was 11 when the war happened we were refugees and um really uh experienced this um uh, one of the hardest things that somebody can experience which is you know being displaced and uh, being part of something uh, that really puts a very high stress on your body. but And I think that despite having gone through this, um, I felt like I learned later in life that, of course, this was a very traumatic experience for many people uh, and for me my, myself as well. But you also kind of learn that there is, the, that humans uh, are in general very resilient and that uh, we even in the face of such adversities, we find ways to survive and to come out of things even stronger in a way. Um, of course, there's a, it doesn't always go like that. There's also people that, uh, for whom this had a tragic ending. But I think that um, being, part, being part of uh, uh, having grown up in an environment where you can't take things for granted really makes you fight very hard for what you want to achieve and um, also makes you aware of how important it is to have this community support, to have this positive mindset, to have hope for a better future. I think this is uh, this was uh, the, the, the first part of my story uh, from my childhood. And then the second part is uh, I left uh, in when I was 23. I had uh, my second, my second, uh, the second time where I didn't have to leave the country now because of war, but I kind of had to leave the country because of an economic situation. Um, uh, our family, we had a family business which uh, failed and we lost a lot of money. I couldn't really get a job because of the economy back home. So I went to Germany. Um, uh, when I went to Germany, I, I think I told you this, I had literally a thousand euros in my pocket and I went there totally on my own, 23 not really speaking the language that well, and started from scratch. And I started, I uh, joined this company as a first person, helped it grow from zero to being one of the leading companies in this space in Germany, which was around uh, really holistic care of cancer patients and other patients that were, um, that were very critically ill. 
And I think during this journey, I learned two things from a, from a more like from a patient perspective. I just I found it, um, I, I, I found it a little bit devastating that we waited until patients, until people get cancer to start this holistic approach of working with them. We would, you know, check their bloods and do personalized nutrition and say, okay, let's add the omega-3 in there because it's anti-inflammatory or let's try to get them to exercise because if you have more muscle mass, you have a higher probability of um, um, uh, surviving the cancer therapy. And uh, all this multidisciplinary, this whole multidisciplinary team was a great uh was a great effort, but a lot of times the effort didn't lead to anything because cancer won in a way, or we lost. And I just uh, thought it was, I thought it was a bit of a pity that we waited until people get cancer to start working on them holistically, to start gathering data about them, to start putting the importance of personalized nutrition, anti-inflammatory um, um, nutrition, as well as muscle mass. You know, these are things that we talk about uh, every uh, every day, a dream together, and you talk to our to our clients. Uh, and I think that it's we are now in the 21st century, and uh, 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 we're going through a paradigm shift of what it means to bring healthcare to people. That doesn't have to be. We can need to shift from this reactive healthcare where we are trying to uh, turn down fires to go back to a more proactive approach to understand our bodies, to work with our bodies before it's too late and to put ourselves in the best possible situation that if something like that happens to us, which, you know, nowadays with the statistics is not a very low probability, uh, you're in the best place already to be dealing with a problem like that. So, yeah, I think this was kind of the, the, the healthcare patient side of things. And then there was my own personal um story which was you know some the story of someone who was leading a company that was growing at a very fast pace and um just at the same time it's very exhilarating it's exciting things are moving forward the team was growing but it's also a very a process that can really um uh, that can really push you to the limits and um, understanding that you as a leader and the way that you show up every day to the organization uh, and what kind of state you're in really doesn't just influence your performance, but it influences the performance of the whole company was a big lesson that I had to learn. I was myself twice at the brink of a burnout, so to say, where I really noticed that if I wouldn't change something dramatically to what I was doing, I would be in that very uh, dark place. Um, and, you know, one, once you're there, it's very hard to come back from that. So I, I had to learn it the hard way. Not I had to learn to come back and see this as a something that is going to be a very long marathon. I was just 10 years into my, into my career and I'm going to have another 30 years of work ahead of me. So it's not a sprint. And I think understanding that recovery, taking care of your health is not something that you do once you're done. It's not something do you do when you're done with work. It's something that is continuous part of your waking and sleeping life <laughs> is a very big, uh, uh, has been a very big shift in my own mindset to bring this to, to what, what I think my 
my mission is to bring to other organizations and other leaders. Amazing. And and before we dive further into how you're proceeding on that mission today, um, let's back up for a second because I want to go a little deeper into your story in this company. And first, I want to start with um, an anecdote that you shared with me that just showed how resourceful you were and how creative you were in helping to grow this company. It was the the phone call that you had with someone in the U.S. about their marketing, I believe. Right? Yes. Before we so production, yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so I want to start with that. I want. I think that's an incredible story, and then I really want to show people how the company became so successful. But as a company grows, and as your position in that company grows, I think anyone would start to think, um, you know, what kind of implications this is having in my identity. And in, uh, uh, well, what I'm accomplishing on behalf of the rest of the world. And like, it's interesting. I've seen this now with so many healthcare professionals, people that become experts in dealing with the like end stages of life, which we're always going to need, you know, to uh, reduce suffering and to give people a fighting chance to survive. That is always going to play an important role. But there are some people that I think are meant to see and experience that. So that they can then shift gears and tackle prevention. And I think that it takes a, 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 a certain kind of person to be able to kind of put things in perspective. I mean, again, I don't want to make it seem as if one person is better than the other. What I'm trying to say here is I am so inspired by people that have this intimate relationship with human suffering and who will take their expertise, will take their career and do like almost like a 180 and go on the total other side to prevent the suffering that they've now become such experts in, you know? And I don't think that it should take that level of, uh, I don't think anyone should suffer before they realize they need to invest in their health and well-being. Yeah. You know? So anyway, can you take us through, can you take us through that story? And can you take us through uh, with objectively how successful this company became? With your preferred yeah. KPIs. <laughs> so, um, um, yeah, actually, it was kind of interesting because I, uh, when I decided, I said, when I decided to leave to Germany, I was in a very difficult financial situation. It was really, um, I had a thousand euros in my pocket. Um, I didn't have a plan B. I was like, I'm going there. It's I have to make it. There's no choice. Failing is not a choice. And I get there and uh, I meet this uh, person, this uh, entrepreneur who run a pharmacy and he wanted to start this new company. Uh, and he started talking to me in German about this company, about the German drug law, that something was shifting and he wanted somebody to help him build this up. And honestly, um, between us or us and all of your listeners, I had absolutely no idea what he's talking about. It sounded like Chinese to me like all the stuff about German drug law, I didn't really understand, but I said, you know what? I just said, I guess I'm going to have to figure it out. And part of and, me and figuring so you it were, out- You were already a pharmacist, right? Um, yeah, I had studied pharmacy and I had like, I was one year into uh, my experience. So I was quite, quite young, 24 at this point. And uh, I basically, one of the first, I, I joke always that one of the first things I properly read in German, one of the first books was the German drug law. And I would sit- with Google Translate and try to figure out 
what exactly it is that we need to prepare for this production side. And of course, I understood a lot, but a lot of things I constantly had to translate. And then I was just, um, you know, when you're in that mentality of failing is not an option and like being like, I can't do this is not an option. You're completely in solution mode. You're like, mm-hmm. whatever somebody throws at you, you're like, okay, I just need to figure it out. There is some way to figure it out. And I remember the story that I told you was that I uh, was supposed to come up with this process that I had never done before and nobody in uh, like the, the the founder didn't really do it either. So we were trying to figure it out and I was- What was to, it? What was the um, process? So the process was that we were, um, there was a special type of uh, injections that were supposed to be produced that go into the eye for certain people that have problems with seeing a certain type of glaucoma. And there was a special part of this process which hadn't, which only specific companies knew how to do. And we were trying to figure this out as part of our starting this company. So I thought, well, you know, um, I obviously can't, how am I going to find this out? I can't call our competition in Germany and be like, hey, how do you do this? But I thought, you know, I thought, you know, I could also just call someone in another country. So I found this person who started this process for the first time, and it was actually someone in Miami in one of the hospitals there. He had published a paper. So I called them up, said, hey, I'm, you know, I'm a fresh pharmacist. I'm trying to figure this out. And uh, I also called uh, a hospital in uh, a production site in a hospital in France. So I just called like two, three people. And I just said, I'm, I'm in this situation. I'm trying to figure this out. I saw that you guys do this. Would you be able to help me? And it was so amazing to see how People are willing to help you if you just kindly ask. They actually ended up sending me all the production manuals that they had. Um, They ended up kind of like mentoring me on the phone and telling me how to do different things or what kind of like lessons they've learned over time. And I don't know, it was just, it it really taught me that sometimes you all you have to do is find the right person to ask. And it's not really bad. It's not a bad thing to ask for help. And you would be amazed that how much there is willingness of people to help you when you really want to, <laughs> when you really want to get from A to B. Wow. And, uh, yeah, that was, that, that was the first, uh, the first step. And we really are usually uh, starting something like this takes at least uh, one and a half to two years of prep time. And we broke the record and started uh, the company within nine months. Uh, most people couldn't really believe it that we actually uh, started it because you have to prepare everything. And it was, pretty um, um it was pretty a, a crazy ride in the sense that i was teamed up with the founder of the company who came up with this was a very uh, uh is a very fascinating person he's extremely creative and he's like i always used to say he's like that crazy scientist in the lab that comes up with these crazy ideas and he would be out there and he would just sell things that don't exist and um, they wouldn't like he had an idea that they would exist. He would find a buyer and he'd come back and be like, yeah, so we have a client for, you know, this new product. And I'd be like, yeah, but we don't have the products. He's like, yeah, let's figure it out. And wow. always this this mixture of having somebody that has a crazy idea. And then I would just be like, okay, I guess I have to make it happen then. And it just, that's how it went. We ended up having, I think, four patents in different medical devices, all in infusion and injection therapies, uh, all around. We really wanted to bring, to empower 
patients, these patients are really dependent on hospitals, on our nurses, on our doctors. They have to imagine you have to eat. Imagine you can't eat and you have to wait for your nutrition to come in a bag every day. You can't even go out of your house without this thing coming. So what we were trying to do is we were trying to create systems that allow the patient to activate these medications themselves without a nurse coming. So mm. to kind of bring a little bit of power, empower these patients back and give them something back in their hands that they can use themselves. And this was a, a quite successful strategy. Um, uh, we were the only ones that were innovating anything in this space. The space was something, a space that hadn't been there hadn't been any changes in 30, 40 years. I think the last change that was made was something that was developed in the 70s. Um, so it was very ripe for um, innovation. And we grew, I think, uh, uh, when I started, we were a team of five people. Uh, within three years, we were already 50 people. And then within seven years, we were 100 people. And the company that I was leading, we were making about 70 million in sales um, of all personalized infusions, personalized uh, service packages around particularly ill patients at home. And then we merged or we were bought by a company um, that was basically the leader within the German market um, of all of these therapies. We became the innovative arm of this group. I then also became a chief executive within the new company, which was a very interesting um, journey. Wait, the company because, that bought you out, you became the CEO of that company? Uh, I, I was one of the chief executives. I wasn't the CEO. I was the chief business development officer. Mm. I got to do all the fun stuff, so to say. <laughs> <laughs> all the, I brought in the cannabis therapy for cancer patients and also like anything that was kind of new I was uh, doing. And um, it was it was quite uh, interesting because I, I think I was, uh, at this time, I was 30. And it was six years I was after 30 or 31. It was six years in after I had gone to Germany with 1,000 euros in my pocket. And I uh, was the only person in the C-level in the board that was a woman. I was the only person that was under 45. And I was the only person that was not German. So uh, I, I brought a lot of... And, and probably the only refugee. Yes, <laughs> not for sure. So wow. um, yes, it was it was it was a, a pretty um, a crazy ride. Wow, and I mean that that level of growth just shows how committed you are to finding solutions for people that didn't have that weren't empowered that weren't healthy that were suffering so intensely. Like I think that really shows how dedicated you were, and now you're in a position where like you became so familiar with it, you just want to prevent it altogether. I'm sure it was extremely rewarding to do something like that. But I know that now you're seeing things, you see how things can play out in the future. So you're being totally proactive and preventative. And so when did that finally click for you that you had to make that shift? Yeah, that's a good question. I think as a lot of other people, uh, probably a lot of your listeners and everyone that has experienced COVID. I think COVID was a very interesting phase for all of us um, of ref- either, either everybody has their had their own version of COVID. But for me, COVID was an opportunity to just pause and really take one step back and think, okay, let me just take it in because I felt like I was just running, running, running uh, without looking back or without just going for it. And that was at a 
place now where I thought, okay, let me take one step back. Um, I'm not a refugee anymore. Like, I don't need to run for my life, apparently. I'm safe. And it's it's so crazy because, you know, you're in that position and you might, you know, show up and look like you're confident and everything. But in the depth, it's like what is really driving you is this deep sense of insecurity, maybe, or lack of security or, 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 or having been in a place where you lost everything, where you didn't have that much and having this drive to to make it. And then through COVID, I... I tried to um, redefine uh, the relationship that I had with what it means to make it or to, you know, what is safety. And I just told myself, okay, you are safe right now. Um, You can actually take a step back and observe where are you now? Where do you want to be? And what is the next best step? And I felt like, you know, in addition to all of these things that you're talking about on a personal level, um, uh, I felt that you know, I had been there for 10 years and I had made a lot of, I had moved a lot of things, but uh, there's something about starting something from scratch that I just find super exhilarating. And uh, uh, I think that, you know, all the technological advances, all the new things start from things being built from scratch. And although it's a very high risk, um, high risk uh, decision, you know, for me and for my body, I had to overcome this fear of being like, oh my God, you fought so hard to be in the place that you are right now in safety. And now you want to throw it all out to start from scratch. I said, the only reason I would do that would be if I, if it is something that very truly aligns with what I believe in. And I started this, um, this process of trying to find out what this thing is that I would want to do um uh, i uh i had different versions of how i wanted to get there one was through psychedelics uh, i think we talked about this back three years ago as well um but I, I i kept noticing that no matter which route i took uh you know how they say all routes lead to rome i was all the time kind of getting to this final um final uh um conclusion that leaders i just want like leaders in our society whether they're leaders of organizations or leaders of institution or our political leaders have such a big responsibility and there's such a driving force behind how our organizations how our communities are living that without us really creating change how they understand their own body how they understand how they function as a human, how do we want to create any kind of positive change in the world if we're not going to get these people to understand the meaning of what it means to be human, what it means to be an interconnected species species as humans first, and then, you know, as an interconnected species with all other species on our planet. And I think, you know, it's a little bit philosophical to go that, that far high, but I really think in all the crisis that we're in right now, uh, uh, it's a very big leadership crisis. Whatever, whether we're talking about the climate crisis or or or, uh, or the wars or uh, other political uh, problems, economic crisis, it comes from the organizations, from the businesses, from this growth at at no matter at what cost. And I think that we really need to, as as a society, but 
especially at the leadership level, rethink what does sustainable growth mean to us and how is the human factor in sustainability seen in this. Mm-hmm. And that that's that's how I kind of came to the conclusion that I said, yes, this definitely resonates with me at such a deep level that I'm willing to, you know, uh, jump on the cold water and take this big risk of starting from scratch again. Yeah. And, you know, interestingly, like I, so many leaders will sacrifice so much for the sake of um, helping the company succeed, but almost to making, at least from what I see and, and I think what we've seen is a lot of them have this incredible innate ability or a combination of ability and luck, but they don't take their health seriously. And I would love to see how much further they can take their success and their company success and their community success if they are the living, breathing representation of this intuitive approach with their health and well-being, because it only speaks to the rest of the company. Like if 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 a leader is doing everything for the sake of, let's say, a profit or maybe even an impact, I would almost go to say that it's short-sighted if they aren't showing what healthy leadership looks like as far as personal health and well-being. And that goes, and that does more strong rather rather than telling like. I'm sure a leader can tell you know the, the, their employees like oh you know you guys should be exercising and eating healthy but mm-hmm. unless the leader is doing it I don't think anyone's going to listen closely to anything they have to say and it's interesting that you have been you and you are a leader and you know how many sacrifices leaders have to make to stay at the top um, and I'm curious is in the people that you treated were there any leaders was that a, a, a part of your patient demographic? Uh, that mm-hmm. you know, was there any kind of pattern there between uh, folks that ended up in this um, you know sick intensive care and uh, uh, leadership? Did you see any kind of link there at all? Um, uh, that's an interesting question. I don't. I I don't think there was a particular link in the sense that you know cancer can affect anyone. Um, I do think that uh, for particular patients that were, you know, of a, of a more um, wealthy background or were in positions of, of uh, in leadership positions who were in these situations, you could kind of tell that once they were in the situation, they all of a sudden wanted the situation to start being handled the way that they handle their other projects in the business. You know, mm. there to be an update that with the decision making and everything, but um, it's it's and and of course you can try to do as much as that. And don't get me wrong, there's great advances are being made in cancer therapy. There's uh, you know the biological therapies are coming out, um, but it's still a very um, complex. Uh, it's, it's still a very complex uh, field, and it's going to take a while for us to really tackle that problem. But I think. You know, th- this goes to show that once you have cancer, it doesn't really, like once you're at that stage, especially if you're in like in a later stage and it's not curable anymore, it's more like end of life treatment. Of course, it helps. And, and, and the German uh, German system is a very good healthcare system, but um, it just shows you how it brings back the importance of health at the core is the most important thing and it doesn't really matter in that aspect how um 
how wealthy you are or what kind of job you had. Uh, it matters whether whether you are able to live every day uh, at your if you can enjoy your life every day, which is not the case anymore. So I think you know, uh, in simple terms, like uh, it's not like leaders have a higher incidence of disease, but because leaders have certain perspectives and certain ways to essentially solve problems, even the most amount of money or resources can't immediately get you out of a position of, of, of suffering in this way. And it really, you know, it really matters to no matter how wealthy or powerful you are to make these investments early on, because we don't have a cure that happens overnight and there will be suffering that will take away from your leadership ability. And you can't just go, oh, well, the ability that brought me here is the same ability that's going to help me solve the issue. Maybe it can expedite it and maybe alleviate some suffering, but there shouldn't be suffering to begin with if you incorporate help as part of your leadership um, early on. Yeah. And, you know, we, 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 um, I think what we would use, you sometimes say this and you say, well, whether you're the leader of a company or the leader of your household or the leader of your life, in a way, uh, it's about having this leadership mindset in the way that you lead your life and uh, uh, thinking ahead of time, just like in a company, you don't wait for things to go wrong to start doing something about it. You don't wait for things to go wrong to start tracking metrics, uh, building up your health so that you can survive very difficult times if it comes to that. We know for sure that the more muscle mass you have, uh, the better you are uh, able to handle chemotherapy, for example, but also just in general, uh, uh, your general health and the more you already are um, in a place of stability and in a place of having ha- knowing how your body, uh, you, the baseline of your body over time will, um, will help. You know, I think a good example of something that started back then in cancer and has now become mainstream not mainstream, but like has become a very big topic in health optimization is actually glucose. Uh, I remember when we first met, I think I was telling you about this. We were at that point running one of the biggest studies that had ever been um, sponsored in this uh, area about parental parental nutrition for cancer patients, which is intravenous nutrition for cancer patients are also sometimes in a place that they are unable to eat. So they have to get and they have too much vomiting or they're just losing weight and they have to get um, nutrition through an intravenous route. And what was happening is that uh, the there's three companies in the world that produce this, um, the main companies, uh, and uh, the way they were producing these products, they were like 30 years old and they were half 50% with sugar, filled with sugar. So they were pumping oh my gosh. sugar into the bodies of cancer patients uh, to fill them with calories, so to say. And uh, that's where we, that was one of our methods. That's criminal. That's criminal. Yes. And, and this had been done until a couple of years before. I think it took a really long time. When we, we started in 2012, 2013, bringing out parental nutrition with almost no glucose in it because we were, you know, uh, coming to the logical conclusion that it doesn't really make sense to do that uh, because you're feeding the cancer cells and you're leading to uh, tumor growth 
and it's better to create a um, ketosis. It's better to it actually has anti-inflammatory properties. And you know, this is it took a uh, it took a few years. Um, one of these big companies tried to buy us. Um, uh, the founder didn't accept that because he thought they're just going to buy us and shut us down because we were kind of like the the rebels that were going out there and being like, no, no glucose for cancer patients. And uh, yeah, now now as you know, it is part of our also our health optimization program that we look at glucose. It's it's uh, uh, of course it's a it's a very important fuel for the brain and for the body. And as you always say, Andres, uh, we're not for carb phobia. We shouldn't starve ourselves of carbs. They're very important, but constant, um, constant spikes and constant inflammation of your system is part of things that can lead to diabetes, that can lead to cancer and so on. It, it just, it blows my mind that that was even, that even a gram of sugar was in their, in their food, especially, and, and it's not just like they're regular people moving around because even that is an issue, but it's like they're totally sedentary. They're totally sedentary. And they're saying there's this massive glucose spike, inflammation, glycation, feeding the cancer cell. Um, that just, it blows my mind. It's almost like they want to kill those people. And I, I don't, I don't yeah. say that jokingly. It's like, or I don't want to, I don't want to floor the borders of controversy either, but it's like, it just doesn't make any sense to me. How could you tell me that you want to help me if yeah. I have cancer, but then feed me sugar? It just doesn't make any sense to me. Anyway, um, uh, how how what was the process like of introducing this new paradigm shift? And I know you know you you as you shared, they you thought they were going to buy you out to try to close you down. How did you realize that they in fact weren't going to do that? And how did you build that partnership? We knew that it wasn't in their interest to um, um have to change these products because these products had been um had been on the market for a really long time. It would take a li- really long time to change them. Clinical trials take a really long time. And as Hold you on know- a second. But what clinical trial showed them that sugar was good? Well, you know? uh, none, none. Exactly. That's why, we, that's why we then started a trial, but we had to sponsor yeah. it. And uh, you know, in the beginning we were a small company. And as you know, with a lot of things in health optimization as well and biohacking, you have this, this, um, um, these two worlds, you have one, the world of um, traditional medicine, which, you know, there needs to be data, there needs to be clinical trials, there needs to be evidence to say that something is working. And even if even if you have some kind of data that shows you that something might be very good, if there's not enough data, they're going to say there's no evidence. And then, mm-hmm. you know, the opposite of that is biohacking in a way, which is, okay, we don't have data but we have a theory and this theory makes sense because of either literature or like, let's take, you know, something like ashwagandha, there's good data coming out, but it's also something that's been used for thousands of years in traditional uh, Chinese medicine. So taking something like that and saying, okay, I'm going to run an experiment of N equals one, which is myself, and I'm going to test it on myself and see uh, whether this works is, you know, quite the opposite of what happens in traditional medicinal systems. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, uh, uh, um, the more critical the disease becomes, it's one thing to do health optimization. You are, have a bit more freedom to experiment with what you want to try because maybe you want to, I don't know, optimize your performance. You want to think more clearly, increase your focus, 
um, uh, have a better sleep, which are all very important things. But, you know, if you have cancer, um, if you go into the traditional healthcare route, they're just going to look first at what is their evidence for, because no one's going to take the risk of trying something else out where there is not enough data, even if logically speaking, that would maybe lead to a better outcome. And, you know, there is um, there is doctors that take a more alternative approach. And within this alternative approach, you know, there's uh, charlatans uh, that promise things that are not uh, doable. And then there's actually, you know, very good doctors that know that they need to take a risk um, uh, to, to, to give somebody a shot at surviving it with maybe an approach that is a bit different than what we have data for in uh, the uh, in traditional medicine. And uh, can you tell us how how do you currently see that relationship between like how can someone make that transition between uh, intervening with disease and then orienting themselves towards prevention? When do they finally cross the mm. the threshold between prevention and dealing with disease and optimization? Yeah, that's a very good question because I think when somebody asks us what we do a dream. I think one of the main uh, things that I answer is, you know, if you go to your normal doctor, except for the fact that you get probably like 10 minutes uh, of a conversation, they will look at your blood results and uh, there are certain um, brackets that are considered normal. And then above the normal is disease. There's nothing between disease and normal. So, you know, if you have blood sugar, you're either are going to be diagnosed with pre-diabetes, diabetes, and already start taking insulin, or you are a normal person, um, uh, or you're in a normal bucket. And that's the same with a lot of other uh, results. What we want to do is you want to, first of all, understand what is your baseline health. You know, what are your baseline metrics? What are your baseline biomarkers? You as Andres, me as Uza, um, so that First of all, you see, okay, if I have these markers this year and next year and the other year, if I have five years, 10 years of data, I will, first of all, start defining what is normal for me. If there's a certain marker that's, you know, three years in a row at a certain stand, and then on the fourth year, it starts going down by 20, 30%, it might still be in the normal bracket, but it's definitely trending downward and we don't want it to be trending downward. We don't want it to be, um, uh, we don't want it to get to the sickness level. And if you go to the norm in the traditional medicine, which, you know, you can't blame doctors because this is what, how the system is designed. You just get sent home. You're not sick. You can go home. And I think the, the, the health, that's where, you know, health optimization and prevention meets disease uh, fighting disease is that you're not letting yourself get into this mm. level or you're helping yourself bounce back. You're helping yourself stay within the brackets um, and you're helping yourself, you know, not just what with what you're seeing on your own data. You take an, you, you, you zoom out, you say, okay, what kind of disease is prevalent in my family? What have my, how have my grandfather and my house, my grandfather or my grandmother passed away? Is, uh, right. you know, is there a history of cardiovascular disorder? If there is, maybe that is something I should pay a little, be paying a little bit of more attention to. And I think, you know, continuously um, uh, and 
you know, there's a limit to this. You know, there's also people that obsess over it and you should, this shouldn't be causing you more stress, but having a framework of how to understand what is the baseline, what, how does your body look like when you're healthy and understanding when is it going in the wrong direction, I think is very important in this topic. Yeah. So that that's a great way to put it. It's like, if you look at the trends and you see where they're headed, you can take action early. You never have to experience a disease state. And the, the amazing thing about disease that I learned when I was in school and I took an advanced disease prevention class around, I was, I was the only undergrad around a bunch of PhDs. And one of the biggest lessons that I learned there that I was lucky enough to, 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 to learn is how and exactly why most of these diseases exist together. It's like they work synergistically, but in a negative way. And it's like, yeah, if you look at disease, disease across the US, you know, so many of these diseases are so prevalent and you think, well, there's not enough people to have each one and every one of these diseases. It's not the case at all. It's like most people have many diseases. And so uh, it's not like one thing trending one way is going to be an issue. It's like one thing trending one way can have another thing tre- trending another way, you know, inversely. And it's like, yeah. oh my God. And so it's like, if you see one thing trending one way, you start taking action on that one thing, maybe that is enough to help you prevent a host of diseases that could otherwise proliferate. Mm. So, um, and then, you know, as far as the actual ranges of, you know, what is optimal health, what's your perspective on this? The ranges that we have uh, that, that, that modern medicine has outlined, how do they compare to optimal health uh, ranges and references? Yeah, I think uh, you know to to um to take maybe one step back even or uh, a little bit zoom out. I think one optimal health when we talk about how how the ranges themselves are one way that we look into. It's like a snapshot of what is currently happening in your body from a from one way of measuring it. But you know, as you know, Andres, and you know that we're both big fans of this. There's different ways of measuring there's you know we have the blood results and we have our devices whether it's you know the the or a ring or whoop or whatever other even apple watch for continuously monitoring your heart rate or your hrv then we even have um as you and i are currently both testing or or on the glucose monitor and looking at glucose monitor really looking at your body from a holistic perspective continuously and then I think this is the data part. And I think in, in addition to the data part, it's very important to also have that qualitative aspect, that qualitative layer of being um, in tune with your body, uh, not only continuously looking at the numbers, but also continuously asking yourself every day when you wake up, how do I feel today? Um, mm-hmm. Am I, um, uh, how what kind of mental state am I in? If I would give myself a one to 10 grade on my state today, what is it? Is it a seven? Is it an eight? Is it a six? And what are the factors that are influencing it? Is it what I ate? Did I go to the gym? Did I sleep well? Who are the people that I'm meeting? What kind of activities? What kind of people are energizing me? I think it's that's why I always talk about optimal health as a framework. You have the data from bloods and devices, and then you have the uh, psychological framework of really being in tune with your body and then how you interact within this. I think uh, to come back to your question around what is optimal, of course, there's some, uh, uh, for some of the ranges, there's a different definitions, you know, uh, um, of there's different experts that have different opinions of what is optimal 
um, I think, in my opinion, optimal should be defined based on your baseline. You know, I can, uh, 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 there's a, there's an optimal heart rate for me and there's an optimal, I can say, okay, what is an optimal heart rate? Yes, I could say a normal number, but it's, there's going to be an optimal from one for me based on what my body usually does. And there's going to be one for you. And that's why I really think that when, when we're in this field of health optimization or just preventative and proactive approach, really the personalization uh, is such an important factor of understanding that each of us have, have, we each have our own bodies with our own unique markers and our own unique ways that it works and understanding, you know, this is what, what you live and you breathe with know your physio, knowing your physiology is the first step into understanding what is optimal for you. Mm-hmm. And uh, what does the sequence typically look like for people uh, that want to approach their leadership and their life in this fashion. How do they get involved with someone at Dream and, and what does that journey look like and why does it work? How is it effective? So um, it's a very important, I think that the, the first step is very important because I always say um, um, this is not a product that we deliver in a silver platter. This is a product. It's unfortunately people, uh, you know, would like to just take a, a pill or just have something easy that they can pay for, and then they will have the optimal health. Um, fortunate, unfortunately, we're actually fortunately. I think it's a product that you have to be very involved in yourself. If you're not really willing, if you are not, you need to be in the mindset of you want to do this because, as you know, Andres, you know. If you have a client, you were worked with so many clients in your, your life, and of course, um, it's important what you are giving them, but it's also important how, how how willing are they to show up. So I think the first step is very important to, to define like, do you want to show up, and uh, are you willing to make this investment? Um, and then the actual process is that we, while we onboard a person, we try to really understand. What is the context that they are in? We try to really do a, on one hand, we zoom in. We understand everything about your body. We have a set of uh, tests that we do. Comprehensive blood tests is just, you know, the basic, but we look into VO2 mask max, uh, which is a measure of your cardiovascular health. Musculoskeletal analysis, which look looks at your mobility and flexibility and if there's any potential for injury. Um, then we look at maybe a deeper dive into hormones or gut health, depending all depending on your situation and what you need. We pick the best tests for you uh, so that you don't have to uh, uh, think there. And then we also um, match you with the right devices, of course, and understand what are, create that framework for you. What are, for your goals, what are the main metrics we should be tracking over time? And a very important part is uh, also the psychometric analysis, understanding psychometric analysis and just a context analysis, zooming after we zoom into your body, we zoom out and say, okay, what, which stage of life are you in right now? Are you, you know, are you just, um, uh, just married and about, you know, you just had a baby who you understand that's going to affect your life. It's going to affect your sleep. Are you just just got divorced or your kids are out of the house and now you have a newfound freedom did you just change your house did you just change change your job 
all of these factors are very important factors in the way that we work with you. So we take really a uh, holistic approach. And then uh, um, after we understand who you are, where you are, where you want to be, we try to design together with you a route how to get there the best way and match you with our um, with our experts, with the ones that fit best to you, uh, to your personality, because uh, Andres, and I'd love to hear from, from you what you think about it, but I, I, in my opinion, the, the relationship with the coach is such an important factor in success. And I know that people talk about all this development in AI and an AI health coach, and I understand that that's a very important way that we are going to proceed as well into to bring this product to the mass market. But truly, um, I don't think that the, a relationship with a very good coach will be able to be replaced by an uh, uh, technology. Not, not absolutely. At the moment. Maybe in the future where there's an avatar version of you, but not at the moment. <laughs> Well, I mean, I'll tell you what, I think that in a world that is being totally overtaken by AI, it's more important now than ever to really develop your interpersonal skills so that you're not replaced by AI and so that you can really highlight your unique value and uh, the things that only you can do. I think it's more important now than ever to, yeah, like familiarize yourself with AI to and use it to the best of your ability, but that doesn't, it's not an excuse to dismiss yourself of what you're capable of. It's not an ex- it's not it's not a a band-aid it's it's like you should make an equal if at least an equal investment in your personal human abilities and i think a lot of that comes with um you know being social being engaged with people being present with people spending less time online more time in person with people and you know while i see my clients uh, my dream clients uh through zoom I do everything in my power to be absolutely and totally present with them and really understand them. not not to become friendly and friends with them, but more so to build a, a relationship where we fully trust one another and we're fully aware of what really do we need to prioritize so that we can create an avenue that makes sense, an avenue that they can um, approach with confidence um, that orients them naturally towards the best and healthiest version of themselves. Um, so I spoke previously, I mean, I think, you know, when we started this conversation, we were sp- t- talking about all the different ways that the wrong habits and the wrong leadership, how they can lead you to, to these disease states and how it's so sad to see people in disease states because even as leaders, it's typically too late uh, to do something that, you know, meaningful. By that, by that, by that point, so much harm has already been done. And it's not like, our clients are people that are dealing with such uh, a degree of illness. But we know that if we can make even small adjustments that influence their well-being, they're going to be more fulfilled as leaders. And we know objectively that they're never going to have to deal with this kind of suffering you know, years on the line. And that to me, it's not as here's the thing about prevention is like it's very rewarding but you're not saving lives you know what i mean <laughs> like theoretically you are um yeah but but it's it's you, you just don't trust, see the yeah. yes you don't you never see the repercussions see. of like what if i didn't do this you know <laughs> but i i do think that that's why uh, that's why you know 
prevention is, of course, the backbone, but that's why we also talk about performance because yeah. I think that, you know, it's not just about not getting sick. It's also about the ability to show up as your highest functioning self, as your best self every day, and to be able to um, uh, tackle the challenges that are giving it to you. And especially as a leader, you don't only have the responsibility for yourself, you have responsibility yeah. for the whole organization and for whatever mission you are driving forward. If you think about it, all the solutions to cancer or to other problems out there are being brought forward by some crazy founders out there that are coming up with new ideas and being like, okay, let's let's go for this and let's let's discover something new or some some leaders that are really taking risks. And it's not easy. It's not an easy uh, a task to be at, uh, at the forefront of technological and scientific development and really pushing the barriers. And these people have a lot of responsibilities on their shoulders, um, th- them and their organizations. And I think putting them in a putting them in a place to show up to that job, to be able to do it in the best way that they can without burning out. Because, you know, let's be honest, a lot of people burn out in this process. Um, um, is it is also an indirect way in working on all these different um, advancements. Well, we're, we're laying the, so what I, I think the, the link there with performance, the way that I would describe it to, to tie into this with you is like, if you can help, lay the foundation for physiological excellence to happen and performance is an option and you can opt in whenever you want. Um, That's the way I see performance. It's not like, you know, like, yeah, like I think a lot of the people that we work with are supernatural abilities, but what we're doing is we're essentially looking at your lifestyle, looking at your data and guaranteeing that you can tap into that as often and as much as you can without burning out. I think that's really the secret sauce. And you know, this this without burning out, that fine line between, you know, using the stressor as something that prepares you to take right. on the challenge and show up, you know, like you, I know I was talking to you a few weeks ago when you were, um, when you were going to have your keynotes uh, speech at the conference and you did say you were slightly nervous, but it's that it's that that very nice nervous feeling, right? Oh yeah, that, totally. That gives you that gives you that extra kick. And I think um this the the relationship with stress and how um how how we measure it, how we feel it, but also how we use it. How do we use stress to to work with our body and not against our body? You know, how do we use good stress we talk a lot about whether it's cold showers or cold plunges or, you know, good stress in the sense of very intense uh, exercise. It's all good stress that increases the resilience of our body, prepares us to be uh, ready for more stress in a way, but also avoiding that 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 part of stress, which is just simmering there and is not really preparing us for anything. Mm-hmm. It's just not allowing us to recover. Yeah. Yeah, and and the, there's there's so many leaders that we work with who are who are type A individuals that are just go 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 nonstop people, and while those people, I think a lot of those people who initially take an interest in uh, fitness and and biohacking and like fasting, 
like they can, it's very likely that they overdo it. You know, they want to add in as much health as they can. So they do the fasting. When they, when they combine all these things, like I think what they're not keeping in mind is that these, these are all hormetic stressors. The idea is that they are stressful and that stress can uh, prepare your physiology, that it can benefit you, that it can make you faster, fitter and stronger and leaner. But if there's already an excess of stress that isn't being effectively, you're not effectively recovering from, then it's doing more harm than good. It's making you more catabolic. It's making you, uh, it's 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 pumping up your your cortisol, your adrenaline. It's uh, increasing your resting heart rate, diminishing your HRV, and over time, that may seem on the surface like you're the healthiest guy ever. Maybe you are getting leaner because you're just super catabolic, but you're not getting healthier. And the odds of burnout and being totally wiped out and extinguished are extremely high. So I think the leaders that actually want to accomplish the most, they need to recover the hardest. And they need to know if you have data, you know exactly when, how long, and how to recover. It gives you the insights. And I think what we believe here at Dream is that that data hopefully lays the foundation of what becomes an intuitive approach, a more intuitive and mindful approach to your leadership ability. Yes. Um, I fully agree with you there. And it's, uh, you know, it's what the core of our philosophy, I guess, in our approach. And I think it's really important, the, the, this concept of what you're talking about, the performance slash burnout, uh, or where, where, where do we, where do we talk about performance, stress for performance and burnout, but also just in general, the kind of language and the, the the paradigm that is around the topic of burnout and well-being and how it's seen in organizations, especially in the types of uh, leaders that we work with. We're usually working with, you know, very fast moving people that are in high growth environments where it's really about, um, uh, I guess, the, the, the version of Olympic athletes in, in, in the business world. And mm-hmm. I think that for, for, for a long time, it's been this, there's been this badge of honor, like talking about how few hours you have slept or how almost feeling like you're almost burnt out was almost kind of something that you were supposed to do as a, let's say as a founder. And uh, uh, as if, if you're not at that point, you're not really actually doing your job. And, you know, these, these, uh, uh Exactly. These leaders, they get to a point where their organizations, um, their organizations go to a certain, to a certain point where maybe the team has come to a point where they start leaving. And that's when they start doing this exercise of, oh, how do we increase engagement? How to make sure people aren't leaving? And they start doing well-being as a checkbox exercise and offering all these like well-being perks within the organization. And as we said earlier, but if they're not living and breathing it themselves, if it's not coming from the core, it's not really going to be trickling down into the organization. And I think uh, uh, what we're trying to do together, one breath, and I know that you you, um, have a big, I've had a big role to play in this, is to really uh, re- reframe what it means, what health means and what well-being means. And it's not something that you are showing weakness and you're not like getting your recovery in and actually setting boundaries and saying you will get eight hours of sleep is not a sign of weakness, actually a sign that 
you understand the that the other version is not sustainable, that you understand that you make better decisions. You're not doing this to just uh just for the sake of well being. You're actually doing this because if you do get your bless you. <laughs> you're doing this. Uh you do this because you understand that if you don't get your energy levels right, if you don't, if you're not eating right, if you're not getting enough sleep, you're simply not going to be able to make the best decisions. You're not going to be able to problem solve. And this ability to shift the mindset of people to see health as a, a core, as the backbone of performance and not something that you do after you're done performing you know, most people think, okay, when I sell my company or when I'm when I've when I have finished whatever I want to finish, then I will take care of my health. Yes, but then people find themselves, you know, in their fifties with uh, uh, um, a heart attack or cardiovascular disease or whatever all this multi multi morbid uh, uh, diseases that you were talking about. And the question is uh, whether that's then a little bit too late. Yeah, ex- exactly. And I, I I love that because of the relationship that we have. I'll put it this way. The relationship that we build with our clients ends up being so deep, so trustworthy. They can really, truly like and approach this 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 change in their lifestyle with so much love and so much trust. And then that just simply shows when they're in their work environment. Like it's like a total, it's not like, Hey, I'm biohacking now. And like, I'm fasting now and I'm doing hit training now. Oh yeah. I just got to go to the gym. It's not, it's not that it's the way that they're showing up because they naturally do that. They naturally see how critical that is to be their best. And when they show up like that, when you bring that kind of energy, that kind of aura to your, any workspace, any kind of community, uh, even to your family, they're going to be more inspired. They're going to start to think a little differently, showing over telling every single time. And I think that our approach, yeah, we do performance. Yeah, we do biohacking. Yeah, we do data. But it's more of like, how do you show up? And what does it have to say about the way that you take care of yourself? How can you take care of yourself to show up even better? And how is that going to inspire the people in your company to do the same? So that's that's the trickle effect that we're building. You know, I think that's one of the most important ones that we're building is how do you show up? Yeah. Uh, fully agree. Um, I think, uh, like you mentioned, we we actually had I think one of the most rewarding moments is obviously uh, seeing people progress and seeing people uh, uh, people have that impact into their teams. We've had we've had people that we work with that you know did the program for a few months and then came back to us and said, you know what, I actually want to give a version of this to my team can we do something as a group? And I think there's really um, uh, some uh, very good learnings to be made also to be made in the uh, sense of working within groups. We were just working with one group of 20 20 leaders where we were uh, measuring very deep with this chest monitor called the First Beat um, HRB for five days, uh, really understanding what their current levels of stress throughout the day are, how good are they recovering, um, how's their sleep. You basically, I think HRB is measurement of life in a way. It's not just it's measuring basically 24 hours. How is your nervous system reacting to everything that you're doing? And 
uh, getting that recovery balance, understanding where their balance is and um, coming back to them individually and showing them the data and saying, this is what your body is uh, um, experiencing during your your normal day in a five-day period. And uh, this is how much you're recovering and this is what you need to really show up and actually showing them examples with real live data on their bodies makes such a big difference to just talking theoretically about things. And then also having that opportunity to come back as a group and not only share, not only learn through your individual experience, but also learn as a group from each other and also break that, break that taboo of talking about these things, break, start breaking the taboo of talking about burnout, make it normalize, normalize leaders, founders, and their teams uh, uh, speaking up about, you know, recovery being needed. Or uh, I think sleep, quality of sleep should be one of the main metrics in, in any organization. I think that's, you know, if you have a sleep score for your whole organization and that sleep score is in a good shape, then you're doing something right. Um, if that sleep score is all of a sudden, then it's okay for it to go down now and then if there's a really big project to be done or there's something uh, happening. But if, if, if that's continuously going downwards, then it's also a marker or indicator that there's something going wrong. I mean, it's this is really where you where you start to understand that your human KPIs, KPIs are your business KPIs. If I have five sales guys that are going to do a pitch to a company and they're all pretty decent and one of them has a significantly higher HRV score or recovery score that day, he's going to be the one on the sales call, period. <laughs> he's going to be more emotionally regulated and prepared to mm. achieve peak performance, period. Like a that that's just the matter of fact. And so like, if we start to think about, you know, um, getting, you know, if we look at a company and we look at our employees or our team as being like all these chess pieces, everyone's playing a different role in a different way. Like, how can we look at the objective data that shows us which is the best chess piece to move and why, you know, to in order to win? And I think that if we just kind of go by, oh, you know, yeah, you're clocking in nine hours, boom, just get your work. Like, sure. I think that's the, that's the old model. I think the new model is who's oriented for performance today? How can we uh, make sure that we get the most out of that person today? How do we make the most of what they're re- ready to accomplish? And then someone who needs more recovery, how do we find a way to get them involved um, in a way that doesn't require them to be in a high performance mode, you know, in order to perform? So it's like, you can be very strategic about that if you have the data. And uh, I think Huberman, I don't know if it was Huberman that said this or someone else, but it's like nowadays, don't ask me how I'm doing. Ask me how I'm sleeping. You know, it can sort of reveal so much more about my life and my quality of life. And, mm. you know, I think that is something that you can really act on. Whereas just asking me how I'm doing, all right, I'm not doing that well. Okay, well, I hope that you feel better. <laughs> no, it's like, I didn't sleep yeah. that well. All right, well, maybe you should, you know, prioritize your recovery today. Maybe you shouldn't exercise later this evening. Maybe you shouldn't fast, do cold exposure, take it easy. Mm. Here's a to-do list that isn't going to require you to be a peak performer. Maybe just a few action items that you can execute on. You know, like we can see these shifts and and, and I think improve the well-being of the company if we tutor KPIs or human KPIs like business KPIs. Definitely. I think, you know, sleep, sleep is such a good one, uh, not just because of sleep itself, measuring the hours of sleep, but, uh, you know, 
measuring heart rate during sleep, which is what most of these devices also do, really gives you um, such a such a deep insight into what is happening with the nervous system of that person. Because um, I, I I had myself. Um, I had myself, I, I, one of the main metrics that I track over time is my resting heart rate, actually. Um, of course, HRV as well, but I particularly look at my resting heart rate um, as a measure of uh, my nervous system. How, how, how calm am I? How good is my sleep, of course? And I really I noticed uh, a month ago um, when we were in the very stressful times with all this news of war, Obviously, as I said in the beginning, I have been, I have experienced war myself, uh, so this is a very triggering um, uh, situation for me. Uh, it's very hard to to not uh, worry about these things. Uh, also, in not my, where my parents are, there was also like a, a little bit of a risk of something again starting. And I just noticed that that on top of everything else, for that week, all of a sudden, my resting heart rate was about ten to fifteen beats higher every night. Mm in that week that I was worrying so much. And um, it just reminded me that, you know, no matter how how good I think I'm handling it or not handling it, seeing that number really reminded me to really dial up on my well-being practices, make sure mm-hmm. I'm uh, uh, disconnecting from my, from my devices ahead of bedtime, make sure, especially in these hard times, uh, that I'm getting in my whatever I need to, to make myself to make my nervous system uh, calmer and um you know maybe not always it doesn't always change the situation but i think having these numbers support you in building that interoceptive awareness that we all talk about we always talk about this intuition this uh, ability to understand what's going on with your body is super important and ha- i think if there's one if i could choose just one metric to measure, I would probably choose um, uh, nighttime resting heart rate. <laughs> Amazing. And uh, I was going to ask you, you know, what do you believe everyone should know about their physiology? But I think you really uh, already answered that question for us um, because it's so revealing of almost everything else. If we look at sleep as like being so far upstream of every other healthy habit, if you get the sleep right, everything else kind of figures itself out pretty nicely. Um, and then- I know we're running short on time here, but I wanted to ask you, you know, given your uh, the vast experience that you've had, you know, from disease intervention, uh, you know, to disease prevention and now health optimization, uh, and your personal history, you know, if you could put a message somewhere on a billboard, whether it's a phrase, uh, a sentence, what would it say and where would you put it? What is every well? Not every, but what? 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 Where? Yeah. What? What would? What would it say? Where would you put it? It could be for a very particular crowd, or it could be for a mass audience. Yeah, that's a very good question. I used to have, uh, I used to have a saying that I would always write, either like if I had to write an essay or any anywhere. I had this quote in my teenage years and most of my twenties, and it was, "What doesn't kill you only makes you stronger." And I think it was like a mantra that I had to tell myself when I was going through very rough times. And it reminded me of uh, resilience. And I really try, I think it's a very important getting through hard times in life. And so much is a lot uh, to do with mindset and really seeing opportunity where there are problems 
and seeing even if something really bad is happening to you seeing a way to to um to grow out of that but i have to say uh, now that uh, i've I'm, I've been running quite a few workshops on burnout lately. I, I'm not sure I fully agree with the saying anymore because I do think there are some things that won't kill you, but they're also not going to make you stronger. And that is burnout. And you really need to understand to what degree can your body um, handle adversity and where is the boundary before you're going to create more damage. You might not die, but you're really not going to be in a good place. And once you're there, it's very difficult to come back from that. So um, I actually, um, I I have my whole phone here. I'm just going to open it because I, I was in this Chinese, I was in this Chinese um, um, restaurant and I got one of these, you know, these like cookie yeah. things. And I, I read it and I was like, yes, portion cookies. <laughs> and I, I've had it since. I, I think I, I found it like a year, two or three years ago. And it says, courage is not the absence of fear. It is the conquest of it. And I really think that this is, this was, I think, um, just, just a couple months before I quit my job to, you know, move countries, start a new company, completely start fresh, take such a big risk. And uh, I know a few people were telling me like, oh my God, you're so like fearless. And I'm like, oh no, I'm not fearless at all. And I'm I'm very scared, <laughs> but it's not the absence of fear that defines courage. It's uh, you know just conquering it, seeing mm-hmm. it, but not letting it stop you. And I think um, to connect it back to what we were talking about, I think it's very important to have courage to live your best life, to have courage to show up uh, as your best self, to to have courage to to show up as your authentic self, to have courage to do things differently and to not fear, to not let fear stop you from uh, becoming the best version of you. I think that is uh, one message that I would give as a, a general advice to everyone. And where would, where would you put this message? So to everyone, does that mean that you would put this billboard on the moon? <laughs> well, you know, I'm a I'm a big fan of the moon, so that's that's a great uh, that's a great. I didn't know that actually. Wanna... I didn't know that about you. Yes, uh, I'm a, I'm a I'm a moon worshiper, so, but uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't ruin uh, the moon with any sayings. I think it's beautiful as it is. <laughs> I think um, uh, a good way to put it would be you know a lot of people. Uh, I find that every time I travel, when I'm I think at the gate or somewhere where. I think when you're in an airplane, it's a very good time to reflect. I've made big decisions on airplanes. You know, there's no phone, nobody's bothering you. You just can be you and yourself and you can make some big decisions. And I think showing it somewhere on an airport or somewhere you can see it from an airplane and then having that time to reflect, what is the courage? What what do you need? What in your life do you need the courage for? And what kind of fear is stopping you from doing it? How can you conquer it? Well, Bolza, thank you so much. It's been fun. Thank you so much, Andres. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And I uh, just want to say at the end that I'm uh, so honored not only to be in your podcast, but I'm so honored that we yet have gotten to work together um, since the last year. You've been such a uh, such an important uh, part of building dream, and you are you live and breathe what you 
what you talk about. You've been such an inspiration for all of our team members, for us as well as our clients. And um, it's been it's been an absolute honor to work with you. Thank you so much, Bolza. That means a lot to me. Thank you. Let's keep it up. We have more work to do. And, and we have to continue to take care of ourselves as we do this work and as we proceed through it. So that's all for today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in today. For all of the show notes, including clickable links to anything and everything that we discussed today, everything from discount codes to videos to research articles, books, tips, tricks, techniques, and of course, to learn more about the guest on today's episode, all you have to do is head to my website, andresprechel.com. That's A-N-D-R-E-S-P-R-E-S-C-H-E-L.com and go to podcasts. You can also leave your feedback, questions, and suggestions for future episodes, future guests, so on and so forth. Thanks again for tuning in and I'll see you on the next one. Have a lovely rest of your day.